The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. So if you're new to TBC, we welcome you here this morning. There's a visitor center out those doors to the right. We'd ask you to uh, stop in there. I'm uh, Gary, one of the pastors here. Uh, We have a special treat every year for the last several years. Uh, Coach Pete down here, Pete Fredberg and his crew uh, join us for a special day. Uh, They come to church here, come to chapel here, and then we feed them out in the uh, Creekside building, which is just across the hallway. So uh, for these crusaders, would you welcome these special guests we have this morning and thank them. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, guys. I've seen a lot of your guys. These are certainly some of them, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So good year for you guys, we hope. We'll be cheering for you uh, all the way. I love this day. I get to wear my purple and gold. And uh, Pete gave me this shirt a few years ago, my favorite shirt. Uh, It says, didn't say UMHB, it says LSU, but it's close anyway. So... Uh, we, but Pete, his great claim to fame, actually, did y'all know he coached at LSU for a year? He was a LSU coach for one year, so uh, his greater claim to fame is here, but uh, in my eyes, he can't, anyway. So, hey, uh, we have 400-plus uh, college, uh, uh, not college kids, we have 400-plus kids from nursery through fourth grade every Sunday at TBC, and uh, we need about 150 volunteers per Sunday. And uh, we have some opportunities for you to serve. So if you've been on the receiving end for a long time, great opportunity for you to minister our kids. You'll find a, uh, a flyer in the connections rack out in the hallway. It is a orange flyer, UT colors. I didn't pick that out. And uh, you can fill that out and you can serve in our area of ministering to kids uh, every week or every other week. So great opportunities await you there. We're doing a series this summer. It's called Jesus Is. We've got three more Sundays to do it. This Sunday, we find ourselves in Luke chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles or your apps, would you open them or turn them on to Luke chapter 10? Those of you who've been praying for rain, you can stop now. I don't know who's responsible for all this, but... uh, the fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So if you're that righteous man or woman, you can stop, okay? And uh, start praying every third week, maybe, and we'll get it then. Choices. We make hundreds of choices every day. I mean, well, you've already made dozens of choices. you made choices about what you're going to wear, how you're going to get here. You've made choices about where you're going to sit. Uh, you made choices about if you're going to come or not. Uh, you made choices about what you had for breakfast, or you wish you had a choice for what you had for breakfast. So we make hundreds of choices. I made a choice a few months ago to start a diet. So my goal for 2016 was to lose 30 pounds. I've got 35 to go, so we're in business. <laughs> Uh, actually, I, I, I'm not much to brag, but the reality of it is I finished my 30-day diet in three hours and 45 minutes. It was absolutely wonderful. We made it through. Somebody told me I need to try tofu. I don't know. You guys even know what tofu is? I didn't know what tofu was. So I took a couple of bites of it, and I decided, here's what you do with tofu. Here's how you prepare it. You throw it in the trash and grill some meat. I mean, I... Amen. We got some carnivores out there. Can I get amen out of that? There we go. I mean, I, 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 I'm going to tell you, don't put that in your mouth, whatever it is. And they, they put those two little green hairy looking things in with it. It doesn't help at all. I tried that stuff too. I learned this about dieting as well. A recent studies found that women who carry a little extra weight live longer than the men who tell them about it. <laughs> Ladies, I get an amen. amen. Yeah. Husbands, keep your yaps shut. That's all I'm going to tell you. So choices, I mean, these are choices in one arena. Let me tell you about choices two ladies had to make. 
Jesus is traveling. He's gone through Samaria. He's gone through the wilderness. He comes to the Mount of Olives. He's on the eastern side. Uh, Jerusalem is on the western side. There's a little village called Bethany. Bethany's a sleepy little hamlet. There's some people living in Bethany that are friends of Jesus. Uh, their names are Mary and Martha, and they have a brother named Lazarus. And so Jesus is on this journey, and uh, he finds himself in Bethany with his disciples. And as they come to the house, there's a knock on the door, and the person that answered the door is a lady named Martha. It's her house. This is Luke chapter 10, verse 38. And, and so she answers the door, and uh, standing before her is the Son of God. Jesus is there. Ladies, imagine you're getting ready to, uh, you don't know what's happening. I mean, there's no way he could call ahead, text ahead, phone ahead, email ahead. So I doubt if they even knew that Jesus and the posse were showing up, but they show up. You open the door and there's God's son standing there. I would say that's a, a, you get a little weak need and uh, you're, you're going to do everything you can to put on the dog, so to speak. And so Jesus at the door, Martha is, uh, Mary and Martha are interesting ladies. I'm convinced they are opposites. God has a sense of humor. He puts opposites together. Sometimes it's siblings. A lot of times it's spouses. How many of you are married to somebody who's opposite the way you are? Let me see your hands, your opposites. Bev raised her hand real high there. Um, I'm a morning person. She's a night person. I get up at about 5.40 every morning. She goes to bed about 5.40 every morning. <laughs> one of us is a spender. One of us is a saver. I'm not going to say who that is because I'll get in trouble up here. I'm much smarter than that. But, but God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? He puts people together. You guys, how many of you guys are freshmen out here? Freshmen, raise your hand. Let me see your hands. There you go. You've got a roommate, right? Just like you. Just like you. Maybe a little different, right? How many of you guys are neat freaks and God puts you in, or, or, or coach puts you in a room? Coach, God, same thing, right? So, <laughs> so how many, you know, you're a neat freak and your roommate, man, it looks like a nuclear disaster on his side of the room. Anybody got that happen? Don't raise your hand because your roommate will hit you right here in church. Okay, so God has a sense of humor in doing that. Maybe with spouses and maybe with siblings and Mary and Martha are opposites. I get that from the scriptures because in the scriptures it says that uh, Martha answers the door and she gets busy preparing a meal. Mary goes and sits at the feet of Jesus. Ladies, Martha's the lady who wants to go to the market first. She wants to haggle with the people in the market because she loves a good deal. She likes to cook. In fact, when she cooks breakfast, her yolks are always just right, never broken. You know that kind of lady? This is the Martha Stewart of the first century is who she is. <laughs> Mary, on the other hand, she doesn't like to haggle. She likes to contemplate. She likes to sit. She likes to think. And so she's at the feet of Jesus. She's learning from the Savior. Two sisters, two opposites. Jesus looks at them, and the scenario is quite interesting. Many of you are familiar with the story. Every woman in here, I imagine, has read the story. If you go to a women's conference, you hear the story. And here it says, as, uh, as they were traveling along, he entered a certain village. That's Bethany. That's the name of the place. This lady named Martha welcomes into the home. She's got a sister named Mary who, moreover, was listening to the words of Jesus. So in my mind, here's what I picture. I, I picture that they come in, and tradition in that day and age, you had someone who washed the feet of the folks that came in because the roads were dusty. And, and since Mary's at the feet of Jesus, I imagine she got there to begin with by washing the feet. I don't know that for sure, but perhaps that's what happened. Whenever we see Mary in the Scripture, actually three times we see in the Scripture, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Here in Luke chapter 11, later in John chapter 11, when her brother Lazarus is uh, dead and then Christ resurrects him, she's weeping at the feet of Jesus. And then later on in the Scriptures, towards the end of Jesus' life, just a, a few days away actually, we find her weeping at the feet of Jesus and wiping his feet with her hair. I think the posture of her body reflects the posture of her heart. She, she's a woman who seeks after Christ. She's a woman who sits at the feet of Jesus. Martha's a hummingbird. My dad calls Bev a hummingbird. So she's always, she goes, when she gets up, she's always flitting here, doing something. She's always on the move, always doing something. That's Martha. Martha's going to get things done. 
She's a task-oriented person. That's me and our family. I'm task-oriented. In fact, our staff laugh at me. The last thing I do on Fridays before I leave the office is put together a task list for the next week. How many of you operate off a list? Let me see your hands. God bless you. How many of you don't have list? God help you. <laughs> Those of us know that make lists, we're right, and you're wrong, right? So, you know, and here's the way my mind works, Coach. The way my mind works is if it's not on my list and I get it done, you know what I love to do? Write it on my list so I can scratch it off. Amen. I get amen out of that? I've got a sick mind, bro. I'm telling you. It's just a sick mind. But, you know, that's that's the way Martha was. Martha was going to get things done. She's in the kitchen preparing a meal. I get that from the scriptures. If you look at verse 40, it says Martha was distracted with all the preparations. And she's in the kitchen, and I should have called one of the pizza places and got a big lump of dough, because here's what I picture in my mind. I picture Martha in the kitchen, and she's got this lump of dough, and she's going to make bread out of it, and she's pounding it, and she's pounding it. And things are heating up in the kitchen, but what's heating up is not food. What's heating up is Martha. She's mad. In her mind, I picture her, man, she's hitting that lump of dough harder and harder and harder and harder. I picture beads of sweat glistening on her brow. I picture dripping off her nose. I picture her flipping it off, flicking it off. Can't say flipping off in church. That's not good. (laughs) Flicking it off. And and what I see happening there is she is just mad. She's mad. She's distracted, the scriptures say. You know what it means to be distracted? It means not being able to pay attention to what you're doing, thinking about other things. It means to be bothered, literally, in the Greek language. Some of you are distracted right now. You saw somebody sitting over here and you wanted to see them after church and you're thinking about they're over there. How am I going to get to them and see them? And so you've just texted them to tell them they're there. So you guys answer your text and tell them you'll see them after church because <laughs> you're distracted. How many of you are college students? All these guys are college students. You got any other college students out there visiting with us? We'd love to have you. Welcome back to home at TBC. And uh, if you're visiting for the first time, we'd love to have you come back. So you're distracted too. You see, you think you've, you think you've got me fooled. You've got your Bible app on, but what you really have is uh, some type of uh, Instagram or Pokemon Go, and you're getting after it right now. <laughs> Anybody doing that out there? Let me see it. There's a gym out there. Actually, you can get it. I'm at level 125 right now. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I learned it on the internet a few weeks ago. So. <laughs> but, but here's the reality. The reality of it is this. You've got Mary and you've got Martha. Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha's distracted. Martha's doing a good thing. Mary's doing a better thing. In fact, in a second, we're going to see when Jesus corrects Martha, he doesn't say she's doing a bad thing. He's saying your sister's chosen a better thing. You see, Jesus is on the way to the cross, and what he wants is not food, but he wants fellowship. What he wants is her heart. And after she has had fellowship with him, then she can go in the kitchen and prepare the food. Now, I've got a confession to make. I'm a Martha. I'm a Martha. I, I, I am a doer. I, I'm the guy with the task list. I'm the guy who God has to say, slow down. I'm the guy that likes to get things done. I like to keep things moving. I like things to go fast. I, I struggle with folks that go in a restaurant and can't make up their mind on a menu. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, okay, anyway, no names. So here's the reality of all that. The reality of it all is this. Mary's doing the better thing. God had to teach me that. I was a young man. I was on the LSU campus studying. Didn't play any ball. I peaked in about the seventh grade, guys. That's the highlight of my athletic career. 
But uh, I was there, and I had a guy started mentoring me, and he said, Gary, you need to spend time with the Lord. And so he said, what you need to do is get your Bible, you need to get a notebook, you need to get a pen, you need to go and find a quiet place to do that. And so I did. I was looking back, I was 19 years old. I started college young, and uh, so I would go to the Episcopalian Chapel on the LSU campus. And I would pull out this little notebook, this little spiral-bound notebook. This is before there was anything you could take notes on, like a phone or a, uh, some type of letter book or whatever. And so I, I've got my notebook. I've got a pen. You guys know what that is? You know what a pen is, a notebook? <laughs> so anyway, I'm in there, my Bible open. I'd read it, and he said, Gary, you need to write down what you think it means, and then you need to write down after that some way it applies to your life and let the grace of God minister to you. So I did that. I started meeting God every day in the Episcopalian Chapel in the LSU campus, five mornings a week. I'd get up early, I'd go in there, there was nobody else in there, spend time with God. And uh, I found that when we changed offices this week, we moved out to the new building, just the offices. So if you're obsessive, compulsive, neat freak that likes everything in order, my world has been shattered this week. (laughs) But I found that notebook. Notebook from when I was a student, my my junior year, my, actually my junior year at LSU. And I start reading that stuff. And God met me there. Every day, I was being a Martha, I mean a Mary, sitting at his feet. Not long, 15 minutes, 20 minutes in the Word, studying the Word. And I started reading through those things and brought tears to my eyes. Here's a 19-year-old kid meeting God on a daily basis, God speaking to him. I read some of those things. It was neat to see what God was doing. I read some of those things, and quite frankly, I needed to go to seminary because they were pretty heretical what I was interpreting. It wasn't too good. But the reality of it is God was meeting me there every day. Let me let you in on something. God's meeting you every day. And you've got the choice. You see, people jump on Martha here and say, gosh, look at her. How could she not want to sit at the feet of Jesus? Well, every day you have that same opportunity. Jesus is still alive and well. He may not be on this planet. But he sits at the right hand of the Father, he intercedes for you, and you can spend time with him. He's giving you a word that is truth. He's giving you an opportunity to pray, giving you an opportunity to worship. And every day you can do that. But too often, like Martha, we are distracted. So when you look at the scriptures here, it says uh, Martha was distracted, all her preparations. She came to Jesus and she unsheaths her tongue. Her tongue is a dual edged sword. She jumps on two people she jumps on Jesus and her sister. Look at verse 40. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. First of all, she can't even say Mary's name. Have you noticed that, ladies? She she looks at Jesus and says, can't you tell my sister? Don't you care? My sister's here. I'm out here in the kitchen, slaving myself away, doing all that I'm doing. She's pounding that dough over and over and over. If Mary would come and help me, I I could get out of here sooner. If Mary would come in here, we could get this work done quicker. If Mary would come in here, and then she looks at Jesus and says, don't you care? At that moment, I imagine all the air went right out of the room. Went right out of the room. She's looking at God's son, accusatorily. Hey, don't you give a rip? And so I look at the life of Martha and say, I understand Martha because I am a Martha. I'm a let's get it done guy. And I can understand why she's in the kitchen. Sometimes you're the guy out mowing the lawn and you tell your son, hey, I need you to come edge, I need you to come weed eat, I need you to come sweep and they never show up and you're thinking I'm out here doing this all by myself or it's the holidays ladies and you've got all the family in and you're looking around saying I'm in the kitchen where's everybody else 
or you're going to wash the car together. You're 95% done and nobody's come to help you. You know what I'm talking about? And you're frustrated. That's Martha. She's frustrated. Tell my sister, can't even say her name. Jesus, don't you care? You know, when I look at this and I see the visit that came, I see three deadly dilemmas that uh, come from uh, Martha. Three deadly D's of spiritual destruction. We ran out of bulletin, sorry about that. But if you were looking at one, there would be three D's. When I look at Martha's life in this passage, first of all, she had a distracted heart. She had a distracted heart. If you look at verse 40, it says Martha was distracted. She couldn't pay attention. She, she was so mad, she was fuming so much that she couldn't pay attention to what was happening, couldn't pay attention to what was going on. It wasn't going to be there. She had a distracted heart. I, I love what Jesus does with that. And we'll talk about that in a second. But her heart was distracted. It was distracted. No, Martha is doing a good thing. The problem is her attitude was wrong. The problem is her priorities were wrong. She could have been worshiping in the kitchen because she was doing this for God's son. She, she could have spent time at his feet, but she was distracted by things in the kitchen. It's easy to live a distracted life. We allow the urgent to crowd out the important sometimes. There are things that are urgent, and they crowd out the important. Spending time with God should be important. You ever see Gilligan's Island? It's not exactly the epitome of uh, intelligentsia and that type of thing when you look at it, but it's quite interesting. One of the characters on Gilligan's Island, he allowed the urgent to take place of the important. He was the professor. Remember the professor there? He could solve anything, everything. There's one episode where he takes palm fronds, palm branches, and fashions a generator out of them because they need to be cool. There's another time when they're concerned about some type of bacteria, so he takes algae and makes vaccines out of algae. I mean, those are things done urgently, but what did he not do? I mean, if the dude can make generators out of palm branches and he can make vaccines out of algae, he should be able to fix a boat. I mean, what's so complicated about that? After what he's done, they've got wood, they've got everything they need, but it's a great illustration of letting the urgent crowd out the important in our lives. And so Gilligan and Captain and all of the Marianne and Ginger, they spent their whole lives on Gilligan's Island because the urgent crowded out the important. Sometimes on this island of life, we do the same thing. One author puts it this way. The greatest danger facing all of us is not that we should make an absolute failure of life, but that we may fail to perceive life's greatest meaning, fall short of its highest good, miss its deepest and most abiding happiness, be unable to render the most needed service, be unconscious of a life that's ablaze with the light of the presence of God. See, we can get so consumed in the things of this world that we forget about a Savior who wants us to sit at his feet and to meet him regularly. And so that's the invitation of Mary and Martha. You sit at the feet of Jesus, and then you serve him. We're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works. So she was distracted. Secondly, she was discouraged. She was discouraged. I mean, you can't read this passage without seeing it. When we are distracted, discouragement's just around the corner. One author writes, weariness creeps in, resentment barges in, discouragement sets in. Let me repeat that. Weariness creeps in, Resentment barges in, discouragement sets in. So Martha looks at God's son, who's headed to the cross, and in her discouragement, she asks the question, don't you care? She's having what we call a pity party. You ever throw that kind of party for yourself? I'm the only one that's ever done that, right? 
I mean, we've all thrown pity parties before. I mean, you look at Facebook, you look at Instagram, all your friends have gone on vacation this summer, you haven't left Central Texas. So you have a pity party. You want to get into shape, and it's just not happening. And you decide round is a shape, and you're okay with that. (laughs) And you have a pity party. So what you do is you go down a half a dozen donuts and top it off with some bluebell. And you feel a whole lot worse. Pity party. Somebody else gets a faster computer, a newer car, the latest iPhone, and you can't afford it. And you throw yourself a pity party. Somebody gets bumped ahead of you on the depth chart. And these coaches don't have any idea what they're thinking. How can they not see your talent? You've got a pity party back in the dorm room. How's it work for us? There's a guy named Dave Dravecki. That may, name may not ring a bell to some of you, but uh, if you know about Dave Dravecki, he was a pitcher for the San Diego Padres, San Francisco Giants, very successful. He was having pain in his arm. He was a southpaw, and uh, he went to get an MRI, discovered that he had a malignant tumor in his arm. He was treated for the malignant tumor, made a comeback, and when he came back, uh, in the second or third game that he pitched in, it was, on, it was on, they've got it recorded, you can go to Google, you can Google up the video, and uh, it's a horrific scene of him throwing and his arm literally breaking the, between the radiation and reoccurrence of the cancer, and uh, Dravecki eventually had to have not only his arm removed, but most of his shoulder removed. World-class athlete in this situation. But here's what Dravecki said. Dravecki was a strong follower of Jesus Christ. He said, there's no struggle in my heart about feeling sorry for myself. The question is not, why me, God? I don't plan to have a pity party. The question is, God, what is your plan for me? How can you use me with one arm? And he said, God has given me more opportunities to share the gospel with one arm than I ever had as a baseball player. Pretty amazing, isn't it? I don't know. It'd be hard not to have that pity party. Many of you guys know my story. I was diagnosed with a really bad cancer three and a half years ago. And for the next three to four months, I struggled. I struggled with discouragement, struggled with anxiety, struggled with self-pity, and I had never had any of those feelings before. I'd never been depressed, never had any of that stuff, and I struggled. It was a battle. God and his grace, through many of you praying, through my dear bride, through my family, through godly men and women, began to encourage me. All the word I had memorized, I had taught for all these years, kept coming back. And finally, there was a night when I was in bed. And it's like the Spirit of God spoke to my heart. Gary, is this the kind of legacy you want to leave for your family and your flock and your friends? And the answer was no. I want to finish well. But I went through a dark night of the soul to get to that place. And so when I look at Martha, I can identify. See, she was distracted. She was discouraged. And then finally, she was doubtful. I mean, she was doubtful. She doubted Jesus. You read those words, don't you? Don't you care? And let's be honest, guys. Most of us have asked that question before. Hey, God, don't you care that my marriage is on life support? God, don't, don't you care that my kids are drowning in sin? God, don't you care my business is failing? God, don't you care enough money to get through the semester? God, don't you care that my, my health is fragile? God, don't you care that my boss is obnoxious? God, don't, don't you care that you fill in that blank? And so here's Martha saying, Jesus, do you really care? 
Do you really care? So for each of us, TBCers, you young men visiting with us, our guests, I want you to know something, Jesus cares. He's got the scars to prove it. He cares. If you ever doubt that, you're ever distracted and you're ever discouraged by that, you look to the cross. So Jesus gives, he diagnosed the problem. He's the great physician. He says, Martha, you've got a problem. Your soul is troubled. Look at the next verse. If you, if you look at uh, verse 41, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. The, the New Testament's written in Greek. You know what the Greek words worried and bothered mean in English? Worried and bothered. That's what it means. Martha, you're worried. You're bothered. You're agitated. You've got a lot of anxiety about not just this, but about a lot of things, Martha. So if you're that person out there filled with anxiety, things aren't gone the way they should, or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe God has blessed you tremendously. You have more than you ever thought you would have. You've exceeded expectations of your life. You become independent of God. That can make your soul troubled as well. And so he looks at Martha and he says, Martha, your, your soul is troubled. We've got to do something about that. He said, you're bothered by a lot of things, but Martha, only a couple of things are necessary. Really, one, Martha. One. By the way, when Jesus says, Martha, Martha, I think that's a term of endearment. I think it's a term of concern. It's a term of care. There are four times in the scripture where Jesus repeats a name. The first time we see it, he's looking at the city of Jerusalem that's living in sin and apart from the prophets, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Here he says, Martha, Martha. A little earlier he said, Simon, Simon, Satan's going to sift you like wheat. And then later on in the book of Acts, there's a guy named Saul. He's persecuting the church. He's on the road to Damascus, and Jesus repeats his name, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? And so I think Jesus is gently nudging Martha and saying, Martha, you're doing a good thing, but you could be at my feet. You'd be spending time in my presence. You could be a woman who's growing in grace, and then you can serve me. And guys, there's a great lesson there for us. You spend time at the feet of Jesus, and then you go out and you serve him well. And so Jesus says, the priority is pursuing me. That's the priority. When I look at this, we've been looking at this, Jesus is, all summer. I see Jesus is concerned. He's concerned. He's concerned about Martha. He's concerned about you. He's concerned about her attitude and her priorities, and he's concerned about you and your attitude and your priorities. And so I don't throw rocks at Martha because I'm one. I want to be more like Mary. But the reality of it is, our Savior stands with arms wide open saying, whichever you are, I love you, I care for you, I fill you with my righteousness, and you're my son or daughter when you trust me as your own. So some of you today are distracted, you are discouraged, you're doubting. Maybe you're bothered, maybe you're worried. Maybe it's the first time out of the shoot as a new college student and you're kind of worried about classes starting or what's going to happen there, I'm not sure what. About 15 years ago, there was an occurrence in Florida that was very similar to what happened at Disney World just in the recent months. You saw the Disney World story where a young kid was snatched by an alligator on the banks and lost his life. Uh, about 15 years ago, I think it was, same thing happened to a young boy named Michael. Michael was 12 years old, lived in the Orlando area. There was a pond in the backyard surrounded by houses. 
and he loved to, he loved to snorkel. And so Michael at age 12 and his two uh, female cousins went snorkeling and one of them got tired, came out of the pond. Second one was in the water, but had her head up when she heard the neighbors screaming. There was a 10 foot, 400 pound alligator coming towards them. She made it out of the water. Michael's head was under the water with the snorkel. He had the mask, the snorkel, and the fins on his feet. And uh, he did not hear the screaming, the hollering. And so he, he didn't realize the gator was coming after him. He was swimming in the direction of the gator. The gator came and clamped his jaws on his head. There was so much pressure that he would have a 14-inch scar across the top of his scalp from the teeth of the gator. For some reason, the gator let him go. They think perhaps it was a snorkel that caught, caught in the gator's throat or perhaps the mass, they're not sure what, they let him go. Realizing what happened, he made a beeline for the shore. The gator, realizing what happened, made a beeline for him. His mom was washing dishes in the house. She saw through the window what was happening when she heard the neighbor screaming. So she runs out to the pond. She watches this chase. Her son is seconds away from losing his life. She reaches out, she runs in the water, reaches out to grab her son's hand. At the same time, the gator clamps upon his leg. A tug of war ensues. She is a five foot two, 110 pound woman. This is a 10 foot gator, 400 pounds. They killed it the next day. A tug of war ensues, and she won. They don't know what happened. They think perhaps the fins on his feet came off, the gator let go. I quote from the Orlando newspaper. It says, the witnesses, called, uh, the witnesses we spoke to said the gator disappeared with a disappointed look on his face. <laughs> Three months later, the newspaper did a follow-up on Michael. They came to his house and they saw where the uh, pond was and where the gator attacked him. And so there were a few outward signs three months later of his narrow escape from death. His hair had grown back, so you couldn't see the scalp. He actually had a broken leg and stitches on his leg and still had a cast on it. So you couldn't see those scars. But proudly he showed those two reporters three scars that hadn't gone away, back of his hand, where his mom had dug her fingernails in so hard and yanked them out of the water that they had to be stitched up. You know, that's a mom who loved her son so much, she'd do anything to save him. There's a Savior who bears scars because he loved you so much, he would do anything to save you. And so he went to the cross and he gave his life because he's concerned about you. And so if you don't know this Jesus, I invite you this morning to recognize that death was on your behalf. And you can have forgiveness of your sins and eternal life if you trust in him. Or maybe you know him and you're like Martha, you're distracted. You haven't sat at his feet in a long time. And this is a call to sit at the feet of Jesus, to look in his eyes, to know him deeply, and to follow him fully. And after that, to serve him mightily. Amen? So we've concluded every service this summer by introducing you to uh, TBCers. They've come up, all, all summer coach, at the end of our service, we allow some extra minutes and uh, we have somebody come up and give a testimony and uh, it's just their story. And we've done videos and they've been powerful and we've done stories. And this morning I invited a friend of mine, uh, Frank Kellner. So Frank, where are you? You're out there somewhere. There he is right there. So would you guys welcome Frank to the stage?
One thing that my experience has uh, taught me is that everybody has a story. Everybody has experienced something that can relate to somebody. And my hope is that you will allow God to use your story to impact somebody's life. When Gary talked to me this week, he uh, mentioned a topic of what is, who is Jesus to you. Jesus is. And so Jesus to me is a relationship. And so that relationship started when I was 11 years old. In my bedroom, my mom, my dad, my bedside, and I asked Christ into my life that night. I come from a major league family. My dad and my uncle both played in the major leagues. They were both pitchers in the 50s. And so I grew up with stories of the legends of baseball, the Mickey Mantles, the Yogi Berras, Joe DiMaggio's, Jackie Robinson, Ted Williams. And so as a little boy, when you hear stories like that, there's only one thing I want to do, and that's playing the big leagues. And so I have a relationship with Christ, and I come from a family that has played baseball. I've got my story planned. I'm going to play in the major leagues, and I'm going to share about Christ. Well, in 1990, that story came to fruition where I got an opportunity to play with the Houston Astros. And a lot of times when I meet people and they want to hear the stories, they want to hear the the high points and they want to hear the low points. And so it's always a, a great opportunity to share both. And one of those low points, my first year, a month into the season, I'm playing shortstop and we're at another team's facility and they've got their stands with their people and, of course, you know, I've never could figure it out. Fans always feel like they have the right to, to say anything they want to to the opposing team and get on you. And so ninth inning, bottom of the ninth, they're hitting, and the score is tied, and there's a ground ball hit to me at shortstop. And like many times, usually I pick it up, throw them out, and we go to extra innings. But this night, it went right between my legs. And so the guy at second scores. Well, one of the lowliest walks I've ever had was walking off that field while the stands gave me a standing ovation for making an error so their team could win. <laughs> Sometimes like that, you, you look up and say, Lord, that's not the plan. The plan's not to, to fail in, in those circumstances. A high point was in 1994, as a minor leaguer coming through, I got an opportunity to be with the major league team in spring training in 1994. And so when I'm out on the field, I look to my left, and I've got a National League MVP at first base in Jeff Bagwell, and I've got a National League MVP at third base in Ken Caminiti, and I've got a Hall of Famer next to me at second base in Craig Biggio. Life is good. That was the plan. I'm going to be a major league player, and I'm going to share the story of how Christ has impacted my life and make a difference. Well, the following year, I went back to the minor leagues. The strike of 95, major leagues, we had a strike. And they locked out all the major league players, and they locked out some of the minor league players. Well, at that time, I didn't know it, but God's plan was, in two years, I was going to be done playing baseball. That strike started the downward spiral of impacting my life. Well, sometimes when God closes the door, he opens a window. And that window was opened at the collegiate level, and I became a college baseball coach. And I'm going on my 17th year, and I've been 14 years at Temple College. As a coach, we all know that we can make an impact, and so two years ago, we started a Bible study, and so the topic, there is a uh, video series out there called I Am Second. Well, coaches are sneaky sometimes, 
And there's always learning experiences. So we always teach team first, the individual second. So what a great topic that we would uh, study is I Am Second. And it is a video series on, that covers professional athletes. There's football players. There's basketball players. There's baseball players in this video series. There's musicians. There's actors. And they share their story of how God impacted their life. And you'd be amazed. Some of those stories are not great stories of everything is just going great. There are some struggles in there. The one thing that I think our guys have learned and that I've learned throughout life is that everybody struggles. And whether you are famous or you are behind the scenes, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. This week is, we've kind of got to experience the Olympics, and you've always heard the term from ABC Sports, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, and that plays out on TV as we've seen this week. But if you want to know the thrill of victory, meet the name of Jesus. As Christ is my Savior, He doesn't just stay here in this building today. When I leave, He goes with me. It's a relationship. He goes home with me. He's going to go to school with me this week. He's going to go to practice with me, and he's going to be on the playing field. My hope is that you will allow God to use your story to impact somebody's life. Thank you, you, David. Thank you, Frank. You never know who's sitting out there with you. You never know how God's going to use you and your story to impact others for the Savior. So here's how we're going to conclude the morning. We're going to all stand. We're going to sing a song. Bev and I are going to walk to the back. If you'd like to pray about anything in your life, maybe you are distracted. Maybe you're doubting. Maybe you're living in disobedience. Maybe you are Martha who needs to become a Mary. We'll pray with you back there about anything. And so we're going to sing this final song. After we sing that song, I'm going to ask the TBCers to sit back down And we're going to allow these young men to be dismissed so they can have lunch back in the Creekside building. So walk to the back if you want to pray. We're all going to stand right now. And then at the end of that song, TBC or sit, allow these young men to exit the building. And uh, then we'll all follow suit. Did you guys get those instructions well enough? Should we say it again? Just kidding.